Have you ever wanted to be a zoo veterinarian or veterinary technician? Do you have what it takes to tame the wildest beast on the planet? This week, we're joined by someone who is doing just that, and he'll tell you, do you have the right stuff? This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And viewfinders, this episode finds me once again in an airport terminal attempting to record a long-anticipated interview with an amazing guest. So I'll have to ask you to please forgive a little bit of the background noise from my part of the discussion, but Becky was holding down the fort, and I just cannot wait for you to hear this week's guest. This week's episode is one I've been waiting to do actually for three years. I have wanted to get a zoo medicine expert in here to talk to us. We're all a little jealous. We all want to be him. And so uh, before I introduce you to our, our guest this week, which we're so excited to talk to, I'm one of your hosts, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm also a wannabe zoo veterinarian, Dr. Ernie Ward. <laughs> and this week's guest is um, actually a registered veterinary technician currently working at the Oklahoma Zoo. He is published in um, zoo medicine. He's working toward his VTS in zoo medicine as well. Um, really active on social media, out there getting the word out about conservation and zoo medicine and how important what he is doing is really um, to the conservation of some incredible species that are, are really in danger. We are so excited to have this week with us, Mark Romanowski. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Well, Mark, I got to tell you, I am so excited to have you. You know, as Becky said, I think most people in the veterinary profession have a little bit of jealousy about what you guys do. It, it just looks amazing. You deal with exotic animals and exotic locales, but more importantly, you do some important conservation work. So we definitely want to touch on that today because I think you do an, a phenomenal job of getting the word out on your social media. So congratulations to you. But before we get into all of our fanboyness and fangirlness, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into zoo medicine to begin with um so when i started out in veterinary medicine i kind of started at the ground level i worked at a band field um doing general practice and eventually i got a little bit kind of tired doing that and i wanted a little more more of a challenge um, not the gp isn't challenging but um for what i wanted to do and so i moved into specialty emergency and surgery and anesthesia and I, I was in love with that. I was going for my BTS and anesthesia. And then one day, um, the owner of the clinic I was working at um, would go out to the zoo and do ultrasounds for them um, whenever they would have something that they, was a little more challenging that they needed some help with. And one day he asked me to go and um, I assisted him by setting up his equipment and stuff. And we, we did an ultrasound on a kinkajou and a golden lion tamarin and i was just standing there in awe watching the technician that was working at the phoenix zoo at the time um just watching her and what she did she moved from species to species like it was like it was second nature and i asked her i said uh, so how can i how can i never have to leave here i want to i want to come back every <laughs> single day and so she said uh you know you can come volunteer uh and so i started volunteering there on my days off. So I would work uh, my time at the um, specialty center and then on Fridays or Saturdays, Sundays, 
I would go work eight hours at the zoo in their animal care center, um, just learning everything I could. And one thing that um, I think really kind of helped me get in, get in a little better was that I was, I had a passion for anesthesia and 90% of what happens in zoo medicine is anesthesia related. And so I, I think I was a real asset in, in that. Um, so I did that for three years. Um, and one day they had an opening and I said, how can I pass this up? Um, it was a, a little bit of a pay cut, um, change in hours, but it, to me, what I wanted to do and, and what I wanted to be involved in was so much bigger than that, um, that I just jumped on. And I, I worked there for nine months, um, as a paid employee. And then, um, you know, life happens and, uh, there was an opening at the Oklahoma city zoo and botanical garden. And, uh, um, I got hired there or here and I moved out. I packed up my car one day and drove out here and I've been here ever since. Wow. That's Pretty, I mean, that's pretty incredible. But, you know, I think I think you're so right. I mean, it is truly passion driven medicine. And and, you know, um, I think it's the really cool thing about what you do is the fact that you can check kind of, you know, work on all of these different species and um, really make a, a big difference, just like a, a huge ripple in what you're doing every day, because you're learning so much about the different species and, you know, helping with the conservation um, outside of zoo medicine. So I think it's kind of like the first thing I want to um, kind of ask you is just what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about what zoo medicine is like and, and, and you know, kind of paint a picture of what does it really look like for her? Um, I think there's a, you know, you watch these, I, um, you know, I grew up watching shows like uh, Jack Hanna's uh, Adventures and, and those kinds of shows on Discovery Channel and everything was dirty and out in the field and, you know, you were making things out of stuff you found in your car to, to treat animals. And uh, one thing that that I noticed when I first started working um, directly in it and um, getting more involved was that uh, it's we have a lot of the same similarities with with what we do with dogs and cats and domestic species. Um, you know, there's a gold standard for um, the medicine we provide, and and we're always looking to innovate and be progressive and look for the next best thing and that's um, going to help these animals and. And I think zoos uh, don't get enough credit for for what they do to help animals um, in their care and out in the wild. Um, it is there is some some nitty gritty to it. You're working some animals can't fit in the hospital, so you have to go to them and, <laughs> and do things. But but I think over overall there is this providing the best medical care that we're able to, um, and and that's kind of. And, you know, Mark, just to sort of piggyback on what Becky just said, I think that we do have this romantic view that it's somehow all day, every day, wrestling alligators and, you know, trapping hippopotamus or hippopotamus or whatever, right? There's a lot of just routine stuff. There's a lot of fecal evaluations, you know, measuring urine output. I mean, there's a lot of just kind of grind, isn't there? Oh, yeah, um, 100%. Um, at, at, the, at the Oklahoma City Zoo, we have a preventative a uh, care program that involves routine fecal exams on every single animal in the zoo um, from the smallest lizard to the biggest elephant. And um, it's on a, you know, it's a year long schedule. So one month it's elephants, the next month it's the whole reptile department and we're just inundated with fecals, but it's, you know, it's what we choose to do. And, and I find it fascinating because there's just so much 
you can find in a fecal and every animal's fecal is completely different. So um, it's not boring. It's, it's a little gross. Sometimes some animals have very distinct um, <laughs> feces. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, Mark, it, it's really interesting. You mentioned that. So viewfinders, if you're interested, you know, perhaps the easiest and most accessible, you know, sample we can get from wildlife uh, and zoo animals like Mark is dealing with is going to be feces. And it, the level of sophistication with, you know, mass spectrometry and everything, I mean, they're measuring, I mean, cortisol levels, for example, right? Um, Mark, I don't know if you guys do any work with that, but that's like a great signal of, of stress and inflammation. And so, I mean, you can pull it on a giraffe and that's that may be your easiest way to determine the health status. So I, I love that. But yeah, at the end of the day, you're doing a lot of fecal work. Yeah, and that's and that's really true when you when you comment on, you know, the the research and the things that we're, we're tracking, um, we get requests from different researchers uh, out of zoos, just scientific researchers that want to know, you know, how can we tell when a giraffe is pregnant or, um, you know, how can we track a lion's ovulation uh, through their feces? And so we, you know, zoos all over the country get requests for their animals' fecal samples um, to track those things. Um, and then, you know, it's not just feces, though. We, we go above and beyond into other, other samples that we get as well. Yeah, you know, one amazing thing that I've learned over the last couple of years with the organizations I've been involved with is um, the conservation programs and the affiliations with the conservation programs and how, you know, um, a lot of these samples are are being obtained to help learn how to um, find these species in the wild, track species in the wild, um, you know, get in front of poaching. And, you know, there's really actually a lot of amazing work going on. And, you know, it, it isn't really always that easy to come up with bear saliva uh, for all of us. But <laughs> we've got amazing people like you who can really help us get these samples to help do conservation training and scent work. So um, what are some of the impacts that you feel like people don't really necessarily understand zoo medicine is doing or or does um, on a daily basis with the work that you're doing? Um, well, I think we do a lot of uh, innovative work. We, um, we did procedures on our, we have two uh, Western lowland gorillas that both had abdominal, uh, or they had hernias. One was an inguinal and one was abdominal. Um, one was an adult and one was a six month old infant. And we repaired both of those laparoscopically and we used uh, neuromuscular blocking agents with them, um, which, which hasn't been reported in, in Western lowland gorillas. And so um, that's actually what I, I wrote my second paper on that I presented at the Association of Zoo Vet Techs conference last September. Um, and so, you know, we can contribute in, in those ways as well in that we, we, you know, do these things that have never been done and, and it's really impactful. Well, it's all we want to hear about, truthfully. And it's so funny because I, I really do, like Dr. Artie said, I think we fan girl and guy so hard when somebody says, oh, I'm in zoo medicine. And it's like, tell me the coolest thing that you've done. And what's the most, um, you know, memorable case that you've had? But I mean, truthfully, you really must do a lot of memorable things. Oh, yeah. Every every single thing I do is is memorable in some way. And um, whether I'm directly impacted by it because I'm the clinical tech that week, or if it's because I was handling the samples as the lab tech that week, I think we all play a vital role um, in in our procedures and in a, in the care. Um, it's kind of funny. Last week, uh, I got a voluntary blood sample from an, from one, our male orangutan who is trained for voluntary samples. Um, and so, even though he wasn't under anesthesia, I wasn't you know 
touching him and doing all you know all kinds of medical things to him just being a part of that collection um was was monumental for me Oh, I I mean, I can't even imagine. And especially when you see these voluntary procedures, when we see um, how we've trained to offer uh, behaviors, I think that's actually really shaped a lot of what we are doing in general practice because, you know, we are looking at more cooperative medicine and cooperative care opportunities. And I always say, you know, um, if we can work with the, you know, most wild animals out there to help them offer behaviors where we can do procedures on them, you know, where, where they're willing to participate or or able to to opt out. Um, I think it has really shaped a lot of how we think about general practice, actually. Yeah, I was, um, I had done some radiographs on uh, uh, San Esteban Island Chuckwalla that was getting sent to another zoo as part of a rec- breeding recommendation. And, um, you know, I put this, uh, we were taking just some survey radiographs, and I put this, uh, Chuckwalla on a, a foam pad and he just sat there and I took the x-rays. He wasn't stressed. There was no um, fighting with him. And so when when we talk about things like fear-free in our domestic pets and making their experience at the vet enjoyable, you know, we try to replicate that in our own way here at the zoo. And a lot of that is through positive reinforcement and voluntary, voluntary participation. And it really allows us to um, get normal samples without um, medications and things like that. Well, Mark, you touched on something right there that, you know, again, getting back to the conservation aspect of your work, and that are breeding programs. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got animals all over the globe that are either becoming extinct or in severe risk of becoming extinct over the next decade or so, and you guys are at the forefront of that. So maybe walk through a little bit about how these breeding programs work, why they're so important, how you collaborate with other zoos all around the country and even all around the world. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of at the forefront of what we do as as conservation centers, first and foremost. Um, having guests come to see our animals is great, and, and that provides us an income and a way to, to take care of them. But um, our ultimate goal is to have a viable, genetically viable kind of insurance population of these animals so that, you know, unfortunately, some of them are going ex- going to go extinct inevitably. And, and um, what we're trying to do is uh, create a population within a American Association of Zoos and Aquariums accredited facilities that um, replicates that genetic diversity in the wild in um, animals in human care. And I think a lot of people, uh, the messaging is is what we're trying to get out there to people that we we love baby animals just as much as everyone else. They're they're amazing, but we we don't need unnecessary breeding. So every breeding um, interaction at that happens in a zoo is meticulously planned um, through a uh, uh, each animal has its own kind of subcommittee that that monitors the population in AZA zoos and which animals we need to increase the population of, which ones we don't need to breed. So it's very, very controlled. And, you know, we don't breed unless there's a, a necessity for it. So I think a lot of people um, misconstrue us not having babies for us not doing anything when really we're doing something by not do, by doing that as well. Yeah, I, right, there's a saturation point, right? There's a point at which these animals can't be humanely kept in space. I know um, y- several years ago when Ringling Brothers and w- was no longer um, going to keep their elephant populations and there were other zoos that were not able to afford to keep their elephant populations, there was a huge 
problem with finding actual land space for these elephants to go. It's not like you can breed these animals and just like rehome them off Craigslist for a hundred bucks. Like you can't just turn something out that that doesn't have a, a space and the care and the, um, you know, resources to take care of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look at an animal like the African painted dog um, and uh, actually the Oklahoma City Zoo partners with uh, the Painted Dog Research Trust in Zimbabwe, um, we're, they're one of our legacy partners where we we fund them a certain amount of money every year to, to you know, carry out their mission of, of research on dogs. Those animals can have between five and 20 puppies in a litter. And so when they have those, they have to go, live somewhere. Um, yeah. they, they kind of disperse as they would in the wild and, um, so, so a lot of there's a lot of planning that goes into it, and and making sure that there is a place for these animals once they reach an age where they need to be separated from their, um, if they're a solitary animal. On the flip side, we have animals like our Asian elephants, where, um, you know, they are outside of the bowls. Um, you know, we have a multi generational herd here, so we have um, grand a grandmother, two sisters who. Um, and then there's offspring from one of the sisters. So we have the whole kind of spectrum and, you know, they don't necessarily need to be separated. So we want to make sure we have the space um, to be able to breed and, and uh, support our, you know, genetic uh, viability with them. And, and so that's a that's a big issue, like you mentioned, with the elephants is making sure that they're not just going into a yard that that gives them food and water. We want them to have an exceptional quality of life, so we're we're very meticulous about about those plans. Yeah, and Mark, that's really where I wanted to go with you on that because the environmental enrichment aspect of of captive animals uh, is an important one. And so, what are some of the things that you are doing? Some of the work you're doing at your zoo and, are, and that you're you know a part of around the, the world that are helping make these, as you mentioned, the the more than just a home where you're you have shelter and food and water. Oh, th oh, there's so much. Um, AZA facilities, uh, there are entire teams devoted just to this. Here at our zoo alone, we have a behavioral husbandry and enrichment curator who uh, manages a group of other people below her that all they do is make sure that the animals, the enrichment they have works for them. And if it doesn't, to change it. And then to manage their welfare as well, make sure they have um, you know, everything they need to live as normal and happy a life as possible because you know if you really think about it this is their wild they they don't know right. you know the island of borneo and, and all that so um it's it's really something that we take seriously and if we notice any sort of change in an animal we're going to investigate why is this a, a, a health issue is this uh, an enrichment issue is this a diet issue and and there are people watching these animals 24 7. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, one of the tough topics that we know you are confronting because we see it in the news every day are individuals, just normal citizens that have exotic animals. I mean, recently there was a story, uh, a guy had a, a, a form of wild cat who got loose, caused some damage, frightened a lot of people. I mean, what are you guys doing with, you know, how, how do you address that? I mean, what's the message that we as veterinary colleagues can help get out there? And also, you know, you see all these sort of self-proclaimed animal sanctuaries that are getting, you know, they get in trouble. I mean, they're not, they have horrible conditions. I mean, what about that aspect? That's the tough part, but what can we do as a profession to help, you know, eliminate some of that stuff? Well, I think um, kind of first and foremost, it's to, to realize when an animal is, is in that sort of situation. And I think one of the things that we can do, um, you know, in our private practices is to 
you know, it's great to to post videos of chimps in um, clothes and things like that. But but to get the message across that these aren't pets, and and when we when we share those videos and we um, kind of share them with a smiley face, that that's sending a message that this is normal and that this is okay. And um, that's a great point. Yeah, you know, so so that kind of thing, and then people that have these animals as pets, it's just kind of making sure they really have the education because um, you can't you know, police the world, but you can talk to individuals and then that individual talks to another individual and it kind of spirals. Um, so I think it's just really word of mouth and just really promoting that, that wild animals are wild animals for a reason and they need to be in places to support that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I guess it makes me want to ask you and I I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I guess, I mean, I'm gonna is what then what about just exotic animals in general as pets, right? There's a lot of ethical debate on the in the veterinary industry in general about, you know, the, these animals that are not actually naturally domesticated, really, and, and, you know, quote, unquote, naturally, like we are causing the domestication no matter what. But you know, animals that are really just being bred in captivity. Um, what, what's your stance on that? And, and how can we do the best we can in the veterinary industry to, to support the best thing for animals? Um, you know, one thing we do at the hospital is um, all of our, everything we do at the Oklahoma City Zoo is on public view. So our hospital is open to the public. They can come watch procedures. And during those, we can go up to our interpretive area and talk to people who are there at the zoo who, you know, say, oh, I want a red panda so bad. And, you know, we can kind of um, filter those those into a more positive messaging um, with those interactions. And, you know, one thing I would say to people that say, you know, we're, we're domesticating these wild animals is that even the, the dog um, took thousands of years to domesticate. So we're, we're by no means, you know, when you see a lion jumping on its favorite quote unquote favorite person that is still a lion and you know they don't have that kind of it's, it's just not in them to to 100 percent listen to someone yeah and, and, it, and it never right, will be right. <laughs> well not for thousands of years right i think that's fair yeah and the problem is just again we're you know destroying their habitats and you know i mean mark you, you know the challenges that we're facing as a as a human species and uh, the impact we're having on the world around us. So it's it's wonderful that you're doing work like that. Viewfinders, again, I apologize. I'm at another airport, so you're hearing all sorts of uh, airport noise. So Mark, I appreciate you being a real trooper and, and getting through this, although you're probably used to hearing the shrieking of macaws and all sorts of wild animal noises that this is like It's nothing. funny that your background <laughs> is noisier than Mark's. <laughs> That's right. Seems like it should be the opposite, Mark. Well, and, and the fact of the matter is, is, you know, um, what you're doing, what zoo medicine gets to do is um, really quite phenomenal. We're all, again, so jealous and it's really important. Um, you know, I want to make sure to get a chance to, you know, make sure people are able to follow you on your social media. It's, um, if I have it correct, it's at zoo. Med RVT. That's actually how I found you. And I was just overwhelmed with your pictures. I love the education that you put out on your social media. They can also follow the Oklahoma City Zoo right at OKC Zoo. Any any other links you want to send us to to make sure we're you know learning and supporting these conservation efforts? Um, I would just follow as many zoos as you can. I mean, that's what I did. Um, I just and I, and I learned so much from my colleagues at other zoos as well. So um, uh, there's also uh, the Painted Dog Research Trust. It's one of our 
um, legacy partners where we actually sent my my boss, Dr. Uh, Jennifer D'Agostino, who's our director of veterinary services. She went to Zimbabwe with um, one of our PR people, Sabrina, and they um, worked in the field for for two weeks with this group and tracked painted dogs and um, helped kind of watch camera tra- camera traps and and really took the work we do in zoos out out of zoos and that's that's another big thing is is not everything happens at the zoo and and it's it's opportunities like that um, that really make this worth it is is doing things like that. You know what? I, I kind of grapple with that all the time because I I would say go for it, like get in there and and do it and and you know kind of follow your dreams. But but I don't know that I would have done it any other way than what I did. Um, I think that working in specialty surgery and working with domestics and um, clients, you know, people's pets, really kind of built a foundation for me, um, both for my clinical skills and for my dealing with um, interacting with people. Um, so I think going right from tech school into a zoo is, is, can be a challenge, but I think, um, you can do it in that, like I did, I volunteered while simultaneously working somewhere else. You can, um, there are lots of sanctuaries that good credit accredited sanctuaries that need volunteers. And, and it's just being around these animals, not necessarily working with them, but being around them, watching them act, um, watching them kind of live their lives it really gives you kind of a sense of uh, appreciation for it that way you know if you apply it as zoo, people want to hire passion they want to hire um motivated people and i think um people that are passionate about what they do um go a lot further than i'd say someone that's aced every test in school and so um i that's kind of the the route and mentality i guess i would recommend i love that though you know it's it's like about being passion driven and um you know it's it's the most important thing for us to remember that you know uh, w- we are all in this for the same reasons and that's to help animals and animals of all size and species and um you know everything else they you know need help and we need to preserve and um create best practices and and do great medicine um and, and frankly, I love what you're doing. Thanks for taking the time to just to talk to us a little bit about it. Introduce us to uh, what zoo medicine is like. It's as cool as we think it is, is exactly what it sounds like. And um, I guess the most important thing is, can you help me with my my lifelong dream of meeting a baby bat? Because that's it's, it's really all I want in life. A baby bat. Um, well, there's a whole bunch of, uh, a whole different, uh, there's lots of species of bats. So you'd have to be a little more specific. Um, but here at the Oklahoma City Zoo, we have what's called Seba short-tailed bats, and they're about the size of uh, like kind of a race car or a little rub- a rubber ducky. And um, you know, if you're ever in, in Oklahoma, I'll uh, for sure uh, help you out and 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 help. Ho- try to help you meet one <laughs> when coming during bat season whenever that is i am willing to meet any bat of any i am obsessed with baby bats i think they are truthfully the most underrated cuteness um and and it is so cliche right to only be so obsessed with with a baby of anything but i can't i can't help it i'm just i'm obsessed oh i am too whenever we have um when when our youngest elephant uh, kairavi was born last year i was like I wasn't working that day, but I was like, I need to get in there. I, I know it's happening and I'm stuck at home. Um, so it's it's that, you know, we all love it and we all love working with them. Um, but they eventually get 
get big and it has to some extent be like all of your pets oh for sure um i i there's certain animals i have you know a a greater love for just because i was really involved in a case of theirs or i saw them come into our zoo um as a as an orphan um so we got to kind of help them grow up and you know one thing I i think a lot of people don't realize is that we're as vet techs at a zoo, we're not uh, zookeepers or animal caretakers, even though we fulfill that role sometimes. Um, the caretakers at our zoos are are like our clients. That's the way I consider them. They are yeah. with these animals more than they're with their own families. Yeah, yeah and so yeah. when when you know we have a birth, they get so they're excited like and, and their faces light up. And you know, the, kind of the same when when an animal gets old. You know, when we have to humanely euthanized or something passes away, you know, there's tears sometimes. And, and so we have just the same sort of connection that, you know, when you're yeah. in a dog and cat clinic, the, the same types of emotions are there. And um, I, I just can't speak enough of our, our caretakers because they're the ones, they're our eyes and ears. It, it's funny, they'll, uh, it's, it's almost mind blowing to me sometimes because an animal will maybe lose half a pound in a week and, or in, in two weeks. And they are on it and they will come and say, you, you, you know, we got to wait on this animal and it's, it's lost a little bit of weight. It's acting normal, but I think something might be up and we'll, we'll do an exam and, you know, we'll find something that needs to be treated. And um, then we can, you know, do an immobilization or, or run some diagnostic testing and, and treat the animal because of what they saw for us. So um, recently or not so recently, but uh Earlier in the year, we had one of our flamingos. Her name is Mary from after uh, Lord of the Rings. And uh, she tore or partially tore a ligament in her ankle, which is the part that bends backwards in a flamingo. That's actually not their knee. And that um, in a dog or cat, you know, we can do a a TPLO or, you know, something like that or an arthrodesis and um, or even, you know, surgically reattach the the ligament. And with with the flamingo, they have almost no skin there that would be able to do any sort of closure. And so um, we had her off exhibit or off habitat for, for a couple weeks and um, to give her some stall rest and let that ligament heal. And it, it was just taking a really long time as, as it does with them. And we kept thinking, you know, how can we get her back out to her, her flamboyance is what they're, what they're called and um, get her back on out in the water, get her living as normal a life as she can while this is healing. And we reached out to our friends at the Columbus Zoo and they um, had had fashioned a splint for a flamingo with the same kind of issue. And we kind of uh, worked off each other and we made a waterproof splint uh, out of wetsuit material and metal um, hinges that we keep on her for about a month at a time. And it, it stabilizes her leg enough to allow her to be out on habitat um, in in public view, uh, doing her normal flamingo thing. And she's actually getting a a bandage recheck today. So after this, I'll head out there and do that. But um, she's what what that allows us to do, though, is having these animals that are kind of in a healing, a stable healing process. Um, We can talk to guests about it. They get to see her. They get to see her healing in action. And it's it's a really great feeling um, to to see our work. appreciated and and guess it inspires them you have no idea how many kids look at her and go i had a cast too and you know it's it's those cases that really stand out to me yeah she feels better with it on like they it's like they know it, it works that's i mean that's really incredible and 
Um, it's really truly like the importance of taking care of the animal as an animal, right? Like it's the thing I love about veterinary medicine is you're, you're thinking about her quality of life, why she's healing and knowing that, that it's going to help her heal better and faster when she can have the most normal life she can. Um, I think she mostly kind of forgets that it's there, but every once in a while she'll look down and go, Oh, what? Look at this. And so she'll peck at it for a little bit and, um, then she'll just kind of go back to being a flamingo. So um, we do do rechecks on it. Um, every the keepers are always or the caretakers are always watching it, and they'll let us know if she's maybe finicking uh, finicking with it a little too much. We'll go out there and check and make sure it hasn't slipped or anything like that. So she knows it's there. It's just she feels better with it on than off. Yeah. So yeah, and and I think the challenge of of that of just looking at an animal and saying how can I get you the best quality of life and you know if if we are anything as veterinary professionals we are creative and innovative. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think I, I give a lot of credit to our uh, associate veterinarian, Dr. Dr. Cole and, and our director, Dr. Diagostino for being kind of on the forefront with things, especially with elephants. Um, it's, it's very public knowledge that we had an, an elephant calf pass away from elephant endotheliotropic elephant herpes virus um, a few years ago, which is uh, a, a kind of a gastrointestinal DIC sort of thing um virus and elephant that's present in all elephants in the wild in in human care and and it's the young ones that can be most affected by it because they don't have um the immune system really to deal with it like the adults do and so after we lost that calf um we started running um piece of poly pcr poly polymerase chain reaction in in house we we reached out to um, some people and some different organizations that, that would help us fund that equipment and lab. And so as a technician, uh, I'm running PCR tests on these elephants every week. And um, we're really staying on top of, of this um, virus looking for any, any, in, you know, any viremias or any shedding in their trunks and, and the elephants participate voluntarily by providing us those samples. And so being a part of that, something that, that only a couple other zoos do, um, is, is, is monumental for us here. And, and to be able to contribute to that research and to be able to proactively monitor our herd, um, it, it's just mind blowing when you really think of it in the, the, the scope of its impact. Yeah, because what you know is it's there's just not hundreds of thousands of people studying herpes and elephants on a daily basis. So you know what you're doing is is going to be impactful for generations to come. Right. And and it, it helps us, um, you know, keep our herd healthy and, and then we can contribute because our elephants are so great at voluntarily giving us trunk washes, which is basically them blowing their nose into a plastic bag. <laughs> um, we can, you know, give routine samples you know we don't have to wait for something to happen we can do it when they're healthy we can get the samples should they have any sort of flare-up and um it's just something we we do we really a big focus of our program here is is elephant health and and how we can spread that knowledge to other institutions um throughout the world we partner with with zoos in other countries as well and so i guess i just have to ask last you know what's your favorite species to work on Oh, I feel like I'm partial to lions. I don't know why. Um, I think the first animal, um, the first charismatic megafauna um, I ever worked with was a, a female lion named Cookie at the at the Phoenix Zoo. And I did her anesthesia for a root canal. And I was like, this is it. Like this, this cat is 
old and so old, but she is so powerful. And I just, it's kind of like you quake when you're around them. Yeah. <laughs> like when they roar and, and you see them in their night house and they roar in your face and your, your, your stomach churns. And um, I just, I think big cats are, are, are my favorite, I think. But I, I, I'm probably going to get in trouble from my, my keeper friends for, for saying that. But I love all the animals, but lions, I don't know. Lions and big cats, are, there's just something about them. Oh, well, don't anybody get in trouble. I put them on the spot. We know you love them all. Um, and, and like I said, I think it's just truthfully an amazing thing that you get to do. Um, I, I'm, we're all so jealous, and I'm just imagining how cool it must be to work on, an, on a lion. And, and, and I'm grateful that you do it. Um, I'm grateful that you guys are out there taking really great care and, and helping to conserve these amazing species that are in a lot of trouble um, because of our species. So thank you again so much for what you do yeah thank you for having me on the on the program and and i admire what you guys are doing by creating the podcast it's very awesome oh, thanks.